this evening we'll be looking at one of the most controversial passages in Paul's letters, perhaps in the, the entirety of Scripture, verses 9 through 15. And so uh, let us hear the Word of God. 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Let us pray. Father, your word admonishes us to seek wisdom from above, the pure and peaceable wisdom that only comes from you. And you have promised that your Holy Spirit would dwell with us and within us to guide us into all truth. We pray, Father, that this would indeed be the case as we come to your word here in Paul's letter to Timothy, dealing with a matter that is of great controversy in our day. Father, we pray that we might handle your word aright as a skilled workman, and that we may not be in error either to the right or to the left, but rather understand what the Holy Spirit has preserved for us, for our edification, for our growth in grace and in faith, and Father, for the proper ordering of your creation. We ask that you would do these things, Father, in our own hearts, in our own congregation. We ask that you would do them in all of the churches of Jesus Christ throughout this land. We ask for your glory and for our good, and in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. I have shared this story many times. I'm sure I will share it many more times. Those of you who have heard it before, I say that so that you do not think I'm getting senile. But I, I remember it. You know how when you do get older, you begin to doubt what you remember? Did that really happen? Because, it, you know, from a distance it grows even more ridiculous. And you think, maybe I dreamt it. But... I'm quite confident that I was traveling and listening to the radio, and I was listening to a, um, a very famous um, preacher, uh, university president, um, author, someone inc incredibly popular, especially uh, at this time, which was in the 1980s. Uh, I believe he is, is still living, but if I named his name, I think most of you would, would recognize uh, some of his books and, and some of his teaching, and he was always considered to be Orthodox, although definitely Arminian, but he was uh, teaching or preaching on 1 Timothy chapter 2. He came to this passage, and he read this passage, and then made the comment to the congregation that if they thought he was going to teach on, touch this with a 10-foot pole, they had another thought coming. And the radio broadcast, of course, you could hear all of the laughter coming from the congregation. And then he proceeded to move on to chapter 3, verse 1. 
I, I, was, just, I was just aghast. I was like gobsmacked. I could not believe that he did that. Um, but like I said, you know, with distance, you think, did I really remember that correctly? And, you know, I can't go back because uh, back then they didn't have MPEG and screaming and all of that. So I don't even know if it was recorded and to try to find it. But it, it was one of those things that, um, you know, as I've read scripture over time and this passage and 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and the passages that deal uh, with the relationship of men and women in the church, that always comes back to my mind. And, you know, I think I'm going to teach this or touch this with a 10-foot pole, you have another thought coming. Um, and, and, I, and I understand the, the fear and trembling with which any pastor would, would pick up this passage and, and try to exposit it and try to teach it because there's, um, there's a, a danger on both sides. In almost any congregation, what, whatever interpretation you put on this will either label you as as, uh, as outdated, as ancient and conservative, or as too progressive and liberal. You know, it's like Scylla and Charbidus. You, you got the, 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 whirl, the, the twirling water on one side and you have the reefs on the other. And so I can, I can understand why a man would want to kind of just avoid this and move on to uh, a, a much more um, amenable passage about elders and deacons, okay? They ought to be good guys, you know, nice people. Of course, then you start getting into the, the word uh, deaconess, but we're not going to get there yet. Uh, in fact, we might have another two sessions before we have to get there. I don't pretend to be able to interpret this passage in a manner uh, that will be definitive, uh, that will end all controversy that has surrounded this passage for the past oh, at least 50 years. Um, but in light of the, the, you know, not touching it with a 10-foot pole, uh, I'm going to attempt something a little different, Lord willing. I'm going to actually give two sermons to it. Okay, I don't know whether those two sermons will amount to a 10-foot pole, uh, but we're, we're going to give it a try. But why is there a controversy about this passage? It seems rather straightforward. Paul simply directing how he desires things to be at the church of Ephesus. Well, the reason it is a controversy is that in our day, any intimation that a woman is inferior to a man is offensive, as it should be. But it is assumed by modern readers, even evangelicals, that that is exactly what Paul is saying here, that a woman is inferior to a man. And so I think the first question that we need to ask ourselves is, is that in fact what Paul is saying? Is he basing his instructions to Timothy on the characteristics of the male versus the female? Is he basing it on a superiority and inferiority paradigm? Or is there perhaps a better explanation even in the text? The history of commentary on this passage shows how cultural norms have not been avoided in the preaching and teaching of this passage. Chrysostom, uh, the, the name that, that he was given, which means golden tongue, because of his uh, eloquent preaching, he lived in the fourth century. And he said that um, the, the female sex is naturally somewhat talkative. For this reason, um, he restrains them on all sides. And so Paul is certainly referring to the fact that women talk too much. 
Uh, what do you think of that? that that's, that's, I'm sure, what the Holy Spirit was leading uh, Paul to think about, is women, well, if they talk so much, why not let them talk in the church? I think, I think what's, what's underlying this, of course, if we read into what Chrysostom is saying, is that not only are women talkative, but what they have to say isn't worth hearing. And so therefore, Paul restrains them. He uses that word. Calvin, uh, about whom we've talked about in Sunday school the past couple of weeks, in the 16th century, he shows also his, his cultural bent. And he says that the government of women, meaning government by women, has always been regarded by all wise persons as a monstrous thing. <laughs> well, I'm sure many regarded the government by a woman in 2016 as a monstrous thing. But I'm not sure it was because she was a woman. We've had women in government, and shortly after Calvin, and slightly overlapping Calvin's life, uh, one of the most effective women rulers in that part of time in the world, Queen Elizabeth I, had to struggle against this, this cultural attitude that any woman in leadership is a monstrous thing. Patrick Fairbairn in the 19th century he says, and I think he gets a little closer to the truth, but he shows once again his culture. He says, when woman attempts the authority over a man, when she attempts this, she goes out of her proper place and ventures upon a line of things which is not compatible either with her natural constitution or with her distinctive vocation. Chrysostom gets a zero. Calvin gets a zero. Fairbairn gets a 50. He got it half right. But he, he couldn't help talking about the woman's natural constitution. You see, we, we can't help avoiding the, 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 the prejudice that men have had throughout the ages concerning the natural constitution of the woman. But Paul doesn't mention that at all. He doesn't say a thing about the woman's natural constitution or her bent to being talkative or that it would be a monstrous thing because she's a woman that she should exercise authority over a man. But that doesn't mean that it would not be a monstrous thing. But if it is monstrous, it is for other reasons. Patrick Fairbairn does mention her distinctive vocation. And therein lies, I think, a, a, a ray of the truth that's finally coming in to the commentaries with regard to this passage. But unfortunately, the 20th century witnessed a, a revolution in women's rights. And over the course of a hundred years, in the West especially, oh, oh, by the way, it still goes on. Uh, effective, I think, April 1st, women in Saudi Arabia will be allowed to drive. <laughs> Woohoo! <Yeah. laughs> Yes, okay, so, all right, the position of women in the world is not as we have it here, everywhere, okay, that's just an example, but the 20th century did see a, a massive revolution in women's rights, and in the general view in, in the Western civilization regarding this constitution of a woman being actually equal in capability and in intellect to that of a man. 
And so in the 20th century, especially the second half of the 20th century and moving into the 21st century, we had some very capable female leaders in the world. Many of us remember Margaret Thatcher, and, and who, who of us do not know Angela Merkel, you know, very capable chancellor of Germany for quite some time. And so, you know, even among conservative evangelical churches that, that, that adhere to, to an older conservative position on the role of women and men, you don't hear so much, at least you shouldn't hear so much, of it being based on the differences in their constitution. And recognizing on the part of men that women are intellectually, spiritually, and in every other way, except perhaps generally physically, the equal of man. But that, of course, raises a, a, a real difficult question. That if we have been so enlightened to recognize that the issue here is not about how the two have been created or about their talkativeness, but rather has something more to do with God's order, then what do we do with this passage? Well, culture was used, as I said, throughout history to interpret this passage, and I would maintain that it is still so today. We laugh at Chrysostome. We laugh or we maybe cringe at, at Calvin. But today, because we are so enlightened and we understand that men and women are in fact equal in, in all ways, we just simply say that Paul also was captive to his culture. You know, we can, we can dismiss Chrysostome, we can dismiss Calvin, but now we also just dismiss Paul, right? We, we know better. He was simply a product of his culture, and so what he has to say about men and women, or at least those passages wherein he makes a distinction. See, nobody has a problem with Galatians chapter 3 where he says, you know, there is neither male nor female. Nobody has a problem with that one. But where Paul makes a distinction between men and women, oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just the first century culture, that old Roman culture, patriarchal society. We know it was evil. We know it was wrong. We just ignore him. And that is what most churches do today. And in fact, in most evangelical commentaries today, you will find and you will watch the closest thing to a dance in writing that a conservative theologian can do to get around this passage without offending any women who might be reading. Modern interpretation of this passage runs the gamut. There's one um, husband and wife scholarly team uh, who, who put together you know, a, a hundreds of pages research to prove that um, Paul was directing this strictly to the church at Ephesus because in Ephesus the goddess Artemis, we even read in, in the book of Acts where, where those who were raising up a, a stink because of Paul and, and his preaching, they were shouting out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And so he, he was saying, or this scholarly team says, that, that Timothy was facing a, a unique problem in Ephesus. And because of the, of the cult of Artemis, women in Ephesus were, were just a little bit more pushy than they were elsewhere. And therefore, this, this instruction needed to be given, but it doesn't apply anymore because we're not dealing with the cult of, of Artemis anymore. Now, of course, they completely ignore the parallel passage in Corinthians where Artemis was not the patron goddess, 
That doesn't make sense. Patron, matron goddess, I guess, would be better. <laughs> patron goddess. Um, he doesn't, they, you know, they don't deal with that at all. So what they do is that, you know, they say, okay, it's, it's not only cultural, it is local. And so we can safely dismiss what Paul is having to say here because it only had to do with the Ephesians. Now, funny, Paul never mentions Artemis in his letter to Timothy. This is entirely conjecture. Um, others will say, you know what? If Paul knew the educational opportunities available to women today, you know, if we could take Paul and we could bring him into the 20th and 21st century, and we could see that not only are women allowed to attend the same educational institutions that men attend, but they excel. They, they actually have the brains to do this. Paul would, would change his tune entirely. I mean, these commentaries or commentators are trying to give Paul a, you know, the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Now, what that says about their doctrine of inspiration is another story altogether. But again, it's the same cultural angle. Paul was a product of his culture. Women at that time were, were almost universally uneducated. But so were Peter and John and many of the other disciples, right? So that, that doesn't really wash. Men, women were uneducated. But we found out in the press 19th century and on into the 20th that they were very educatable. That they were not uneducated because incapable of learning, but because the opportunity was not given. And I don't think if we brought Paul into the 21st century and he looked around at the women today and what they do know and how intelligent and capable they are, I don't honestly think he would change what he has to say. Because if he would, then frankly, I have a fundamental problem with Scripture. Where do we draw the line? When we read something that doesn't fit conveniently into our cultural milieu, do we just throw it away? Well, frankly, we can't stop here. And much of modern Christianity, professing Christianity, hasn't stopped here. And so any prohibition that we read about in Scripture that doesn't fit with cultural norms and accepted cultural practice has been simply jettisoned. Others say, well, Paul was just a chauvinist, like all the men of his days. But, you know, they go further. And Paul is frequently called a misogynist, meaning he hated women. Okay? Now, I don't know what Freud would do with that. I actually tried to look up what Freud would have to say about Paul, but I couldn't find anything. But I'm sure Freud would have something to say about Paul's mother and, and all of that. But Freud, Freud uh, would say, as, as many do say, that Paul just hated women and wanted to keep them down. Well, can we take a look tonight? And, and honestly, tonight we're really not going to uh, arrive at what this passage means, uh, but hopefully put to bed what this passage does not mean. So take a look at Paul's view of women as we read it in, in his own writings. First of all, I've already alluded to the passage in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. Paul recognized no superiority or inferiority between male and female. He says in Galatians chapter 3, There is neither Jew nor Greek, 
neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, modern readers fail to recognize that these three couplets that he brings forth in Galatians chapter 3 were each revolutionary in his day. They, they, were, they would have been astounding to the first hearers. Not each as astounding to all, but can you imagine for a moment the Jew hearing the Saul of Tarsus, the man who was trained at the feet of Gamaliel, saying, there is neither Jew nor Greek. Can you imagine for a moment the Roman, you know, who would pay a year's wages or more in order to purchase his citizenship and be a free man, to hear this, this Jewish apostle, this preacher of strange doctrines, say there is neither slave nor free. And can you imagine the men, whether Jew or Greek or Roman, when he says to them, there is neither male nor female. Now we look at that last couplet. That's the only one that really pertains to us. But I, I think we need to realize that, that they, they all come, as a, they come as, a, as a set, not just one. What we're reading here is that the advent of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, has completely removed all cultural, social, and sexual boundaries that we have set up. There is no distinction now between a Jew and a Greek. There is no preference in God's eyes between a free Roman and a slave. And there is no superiority or inferiority in the eyes of God between a man or a woman. This was, this was progressive. This was radical. This would have, this would have uh, heads would have been shaking, tails or tongues wagging, tails wagging, tongues wagging. You know, people would have been talking through lunch, through dinner. Did you, did you hear what he said? And the Jews, the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, this was the kind of thing that, that got Paul in trouble with them, that got him arrested. There is no neither Jew, <coughs> excuse me, nor Greek. So first of all, I think we can put to rest the idea that uh, <clears throat> Paul was a man of his culture. Because this statement alone transcended his culture in a very powerful way. Someone prayed this evening that we might speak truth to power. Well, that's exactly what Paul was doing. And I'm sure he suffered a great deal from many sides because of the radicalness of what he had to say. <clears throat> Second, have you ever noticed that women formed an integral part of Paul's ministry? And, and a part that was not just coordinating and supplying the potluck dinner. Okay? When you read the, the lists of greetings, it, it is quite amazing if you just stop, you know, because there's, there's no doctrine in there, and so it's easy, for example, Romans 16, to simply, oh, I'm finished, you know, and, and not really read it with the, same, with the same intent that you might read Romans 9. But in Romans 15, he mentions Phoebe, who was a deaconess at Cantria, Romans 16, verses 1 and 2. He, he speaks of her as, as being um, a, a leader in the church of that city, of that region. 
Later on, he, he, he mentions uh, Trephani and Trephosa, probably sisters. He refers to them as workers in the Lord. We're all familiar with the, the married couple Prisca and Aquila. Um, and I really didn't check this, but I am pretty sure that in every mention of this couple, she is mentioned first. And she is honored by Paul, along with her husband, as being a fellow worker in the Lord. In Philippians, we have that, that humorous passage where Paul um, exhorts the, the elders, the, the deacons of, of uh, Philippi, to, to tell Yodia and Syntyche to get along, uh, to stop squabbling. But he has much to say about them, despite their squabble, these two women had shared Paul's, quote, struggle in the gospel and were Paul's fellow workers. Another thing that Paul writes denigrates the women of the churches in which he ministered. They are given an equal footing. They are often referred to in the same terms, in the same passages as men, like Clement. In fact, Clement is joined in with Phoebe as fellow workers. So, I think the third issue is we will see, Lord willing, next week, Paul's view of the role of women in the church is far more nuanced than either, than, than either conservatism or liberalism has, has given to us. You know, we, wanna, we want it to be cut and dry. We want it to be very simple. Paul, this is, just tell us what to do. And oftentimes we forget what Peter, of course, had to say about Paul's writings. You know, there are in them some things hard to understand. There's, one, there's a passage in, in our passage tonight, women shall be preserved through the bearing of children. What on earth does that mean? As of tonight, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm in good company. <laughs> About 2,000 years worth of good company. But you, you read this, and it's a prohibition, and it's very forceful, and, it, and it, um, it doesn't seem to leave any wiggle room. I would not have a woman teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. That sounds pretty cut and dried. Okay, women, quiet. But then in 1 Corinthians 11, you read about women prophesying and, and praying that if they do so with their head uncovered, it is actually a shame, but there is no prohibition of them doing so. You read about women who are prophetesses, and you, women, you read about women who Paul praises for their struggle with him in the gospel. And you realize the answer's not as easy as we'd like it to be. And like most things dealing in a, in a fallen world, as people who have been born again, who have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who have been given God's holy word as a, as a lamp unto our path, a light unto our feet, we have to study. And we have to compare Scripture with Scripture to try to understand the foundation and the basis for what Paul is telling us so that, so that we might move forward with confidence that we're not relying on culture, but rather Scripture for what we do and what we determine is right. But also an openness, recognizing that we are dealing with an eternal word that has come into a, a temporal situation that is always changing. 
We look back on cultures of the past, or even cultures like, for example, Saudi Arabia, with disdain. Because in our particular cultural heritage, we have been trained to think that all progress is good. And so therefore, if something has changed culturally, it is good. And we must make scripture fit to that cultural change. But not all cultural change is good. And the history of mankind, I think, has shown irrefutably that the majority of cultural change has been negative. And that societies that have once been glorious, stable, powerful, and influential, through cultural change have become inept, corrupt, anemic, and eventually dead. We can see this in Europe today. We can see this developing in the United States today. Change in culture should not be embraced as if it is a good thing in and of itself. It must be critically analyzed by the Word of God, the Word that never changes. Thy Word, O Lord, is forever settled in the heavens. And so therefore, if it is written, then it automatically transcends culture, though we are still left with the difficult proposition of applying it to our culture. And see, this is another, this is the place. I mean, we're not liberals. We don't simply throw the scriptures out because they don't fit our culture. But we're conservatives, which means we take something from the scriptures and we either try to hammer it like a square peg in a round hole into our culture, or we try to create a culture from the past that everything fits better in. We just need to bring that culture back and everything will run smoothly. But we believe in providence, don't we? Which means that we have been raised up ju for just such a time as this. None of us have been raised up, none of us have been born to live and to minister in a manner that was acceptable in the 17th, or the 16th, or the 4th century. But rather in the 20th and the 21st. And if God grants grace to some of us, the 22nd. That this is our time, which means timeless truth needs to be brought into temporal application. And that is the duty of every generation of the church. And that is the challenge. Not to live in the past or to throw the past away, but rather to understand that God's word is, in fact, God-breathed and is profitable for instruction, as Paul tells Timothy, not just in Timothy's day, but in ours as well. And so I think it is very important that we realize that when Paul speaks of the relationship of men and women, as also Jesus spoke of the relationship between men and women, each of them had a common foundation, and it was not culture. It was creation. There are three seminal passages Matthew 19, 1 Corinthians 11, and this one here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. There, there are many passages in Scripture that deal, of course, with men and women and the relationship in the home and in the church, but these three are passages that show us the, the, the interpretive paradigm that God intends for us to use. Matthew chapter 19 is the passage where Jesus talks concerning divorce. He's challenged by the Sadducees. 
with regard to a woman who was successively married to seven brothers. And in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Talking about divorce and, and, and uh, the giving of divorce, Jesus does not talk about their culture and how things work in their culture. He says that he who created them from the beginning, beginning made them male and female. He says, Moses permitted divorce because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, God, through Moses, granted an accommodation because of their culture. They were sinners, and they were entering into the marriages without any intention of honoring them. And so writs of divorce were granted, but Jesus says, but from the beginning it was not so. From the beginning... It was not so. Jesus goes back to first principles. He transcends culture and he goes back to creation. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 is again talking about men and women. And this is also in the church where he's talking about men and women. Women prophesying or praying with their heads uncovered. Or men prophesying or praying with their heads covered. And how this is, this is shameful for both sexes to be doing this. He makes this uh, very enigmatic comment about a woman needing to have her head covered because of the angels. Have you ever wondered what that meant? Because of the angels. He says, For man does not originate from the woman, but woman from man. Indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for man's sake. That's creation. He goes back to the same place that Jesus did. He goes back to the original pattern by which God brought men and women, both, as we read in Genesis chapter 1, both reflections of the divine image. Let us make man in our image, male and female, he made them. Both in the image of God. And yet Paul says, man was not originated from woman, but woman from man. Man was not created for the woman, but rather the woman for the man. But lest we think that Paul is teaching, again, some inferiority of the woman to the man, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 11 to say, However, in the Lord, neither is woman without the man, nor man without the woman. God made sure in the way he ordained the propagation of the race that neither sex could be dispended with. Just, we don't need the women. Now, of course, medical science is trying to do it to where we don't need the men. We're trying to work to some type of androgynous human. And if they ever achieve it, it will not be a human. Because human is man, male and female, he created. So we have here in, in, in Matthew 19, we have here in 1 Corinthians 11, the same thing we have here in 1 Timothy chapter 2. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. Now he goes on, and we'll touch upon this, Lord willing, next week. He adds something here. It was the woman through whom sin first entered. It was the woman that Satan targeted with his subtle ways. And it was the woman who was deceived. Now what that implies... And, and one author uh, who spent many years, most of his career as a, as a counselor, uh, refers to this as Adam sinning with his eyes wide open. Whereas Eve didn't really know what she was doing. 
But Paul brings that into this equation. But we have to remember that he's doing the same thing that he does with the Corinthians and what Jesus does with the Pharisees in Matthew 19. And that is he's taking us back. Not, he's taking us out of our culture, whatever culture that may be, and he's taking us back to the beginning. And he's saying, this is the way it was. And it is the way it is meant to be. What he is talking about here is not the superiority of a man over a woman in any respect, but rather the order in which God has created this world. Now, if, if I were to speak differently, if, if I would call it today's world, if I would call it qi or feng shui or, or maybe the, the, the Tao, or for your younger people, the force. And I do have to remind all of you that that started when I was a teenager. <laughs> okay? You know, if I were to use those phrases, and I talk about the balance of the chi, I know it sounds silly, but people would just eat it up. I mean, I'd be famous. Because it is so popular right now to talk about a disturbance of the force. That's what I'll say. When a woman exercises authority over a man, there is a disturbance in the force. <sighs> okay. you know, but if I say that it's God's created order, oh no, you can't, you can't say that. Where is it that man comes up with these ideas of the chi and of the force, of this, of this balance? in the cosmos. It, it comes from our residual understanding that that's how God created the universe. He created it with a balance, with an order that, that reflects, as Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 11, it reflects the balance and the order in the triune Godhead. And we see in that chapter the answer to this whole debate. And that is where Jesus who is equal with God, is subordinate to the Father as the Son. There it is, right there. You have what is called ontological equality, meaning as to their being, there is absolutely no distinction in honor and dignity between the Son and the Father and in the Holy Spirit. But in their economic hierarchy, the Son submits to the Father and does His will and the Spirit proceeds from the Father through the Son to do His will. So there's no difference in the nature of a man and a woman. But there is a created order. There is a harmony that God intends to be reflective of the new heaven and the new earth. And so when Paul says something about the role of a woman in the church, he is not denigrating her character. He is not... Uh, recoiling at her talkativeness. He's not worried about what she'll say. He's not acknowledging the cultural reality of his day that women were uneducated, but rather he's acknowledging that God created things that are equal to be in subordination according to his order, which has responsibilities for both parties, which we read in Ephesians 5. That created order has as much responsibility to the Father as it does to the Son. 
and as much responsibility to the man as it does to the woman. Both recognizing the equality and yet for the sake of the harmony of God's created order, submitting themselves to the proper relationship that God has ordained. We acknowledge that God is the the who of creation. Now we need to also acknowledge the how. And this is what I hope we may do as we look at this passage. Let us pray. Father, we do pray again for that wisdom that only you can give. We see out in the world that there is a, a, a vestige of understanding that you are and that you did create an orderly universe, but there is such vast ignorance as to what that order entails. We pray, Father, that you might give us the, the ability to speak to this and to, to do as Jesus did, as Paul did, to go back to first principles, to recognize that you created the universe, you created the world, you created man, male and female, to reflect the order and the harmony of the Godhead. And as those who have been redeemed through the blood of Jesus Christ and are being renewed into the image of Jesus Christ, we ask that we might truly reflect that harmony and that order. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction this evening from Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.